morning, everybody. Welcome to Three Dad Bods. We've got two of us here today on Selection Sunday for March oh, Madness. I'm Brent, and we've got Carl here. How you doing, man? Hey, pretty good. How are you doing this morning, Brent? I'm good. We're a little technologically lacking, yeah. but we got to figure it out. March 11th was my parents' 73rd wedding anniversary. Oh my, 73? So, 73 wow. years ago yesterday, Bob and Bev tied the knot. I talked to my mom yesterday. She's, you know, a little memory stricken as can be expected. So. Happy anniversary to mom and dad. Thanks. So March Madness kicks off. we got tournament selection Sunday. It doesn't have as much boom or luster. I can remember looking forward to selection Sunday, 15, 20 years ago. Do you even fill out a bracket? Do you go through that stuff? Yeah, we're talking about it. my sons like it, even though they don't really follow the basketball season itself. I still think it's the one thing left in college basketball that people care about is the brackets. Cause you talk about it at work or some lady bases it on the mascot, like Bill Walton would catch you wins, but getting too serious about it. Only if the team I like the kittens, they get in sometimes the local teams like I thought UVU was going to get in, but then they looked at they lose in an incredible semifinal game to Southern Utah and then Southern Utah gets beat by Grand Canyon of all teams. So they're going to be in there. I guess they're a Phoenix team, but uh, it's just not the same. I'm looking at BYU, for example, next year, they're getting into the big 12. I think I'd be more excited about the big 12 tournament than <laughs> somebody who's the NCAA. But I still, though, the first two weeks of the NCAA tournament are probably two of the most exciting weeks in basketball. Agreed. You get those 12 and 13 seeds that are knocking off these big boys now? Oh, yeah, exactly. Right. Well, when we were kids, I think the NCAA was only like 48 teams. When Bird and Magic played, the first NCAA basketball game, championship game that I watched was with my dad. And it was in 19... 70 or maybe it was 1980 was it 80 the bird it was in salt lake 79 was it 79 okay yeah and it was salt lake city and the indiana state i think it's the sycamores i've heard of them before and haven't heard about them since (laughs) but played magic johnson and the michigan state spartans i remember that was a great game bird do you know that game is still the most watched NCAA championship game in history. Yeah. Well, back from 1979. The other memory I have of it was a couple of years later, Danny Ainge went the length of the court against Notre Dame in the Sweet 16. And I was a big BYU fan back then. It seems like I think maybe people our age stopped following during the season. I could watch any college basketball game during the season or whatnot. And since it's transitioned into this one and done atmosphere, kids come in as freshmen, they play one year, and then they move on to the pros. You you don't get an opportunity to build a following for your team and watch that team grow and expand. You look at the, the UNLV team from the 90s. Even the Duke team during that time with Christian Leitner, those guys stayed for three and four years and you built 
a relationship with that team. That's why the bird and magic game had so much hype and built up enthusiasm because for three years, people have been watching those two players build to the greatness that they built to. And now you, they want their money. You know, exactly. You don't get the following, the growing with the team. Even in football, you know, my quarterback is a sophomore this year. He's going to be back next year. We're going to be doing this and doing that. You just don't know what you get year from year. Well, I think it was guys like LeBron and those Kentucky Calipari teams in the 90s, early 2000s. They had one Kentucky class that came in, five freshmen, and by the time they were sophomores, they were all in the NBA. Well, ridiculous. I think the time we first got the enthusiasm with a group of freshmen was that Michigan team with oh, yeah. Chris Weber and uh, Jalen. What's his name? You, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. They weren't one and done. Like they had that one year. They're really good. They made it to the final four. The next year they make it to the champion. You know, we watched this team through two or three years grow yeah. together and, and get a following and, or a hatred. I can't stand Michigan at all, huh. but it, it was still there. A sense of a team. And it feels like it's not a team anymore. It's just a group of individuals that come in from an AAU group. And it's like an AAU expanded. What's different now than when we were kids? There was no AAU. Um, you played all four sports. Like, let's take Danny Age's high school career. He was an All-American high parade. Back then, that was a big deal to be in that parade. That was the insert in your Sunday paper. But he was a parade All-American football player. He was an All-American baseball player that got drafted by the Toronto Blue Jays. And he actually played pro he baseball yeah. he played basketball at byu and I then think he was the first two pro sport athlete if i remember and then he was drafted by the boston celtics he had a pretty decent career in the nba he wasn't like a george a role player or, but when you have players with bird and paris and Mikel, you're gonna be a role player and enjoy it and he's completely dominated as a general manager in the nba so i have to admit hopefully. that well, he's, he's been very good with that and hopefully he'll get the Utah Jazz to where they need to. But uh, here's the thing. Now, here's my hope. I know in football, I'm not too excited about the uh, NIL or NLIs or whatever they are, the tracks. But in basketball, this might change it a little bit. Because what if you're a marginal guy that could make the G League, but might get lucky and get into Europe. But some guy on campus is willing to pay, you know, some boosters willing to through a company willing to give you one of these deals, you make, you know, two or $300,000 that year going to school. I mean, okay, yeah, I can wait another year or two. Maybe I will get better. These schools can start creating this picture for these recruits saying, why do you want to leave early? We have an opportunity with this team to go deep in the NCAA, which will reward you now, not just in the NBA in the future, or in the G League, you're really not going to be a first-round draft pick. I mean, we can tell that right now. Or a second-round draft pick. I mean, you're probably not even going to make the G League. You might be playing in Europe next year. Why do you want to do that if you can make two to $300,000 over the next two or three years? And some of these kids are getting five hundred grand or more. Some of them more than that. 
I mean, things are changing. That's why I'm saying. And even, even though everybody thinks anytime there's change that, oh, that's the end of basketball or that's the end of football. But I, I think this actually might help basketball because now it's going to keep some of that talent from immediately just trying to grab a paycheck somewhere else. So anyway, that's right. I, I agree with you to a point. However, here's the big difference between college football and college basketball is college football has no competition until you get to the pros. NCAA can require players to stay through their sophomore year. In basketball, you have a, you have so many more leagues that players can go make. You look at the European leagues, you look at the Turkish league, you look in inside of, of Asia and China and those teams, and, and you've got these teams that are like in Shanghai that will take a kid who's got mediocre talent and pay him a million plus. Jim or the, are you now? Come on, man. What's that? You're not talking about my boy, Jim, are you? Well, he's a good example. So it's not like the NCAA can come in and say, if you come to the NCAA, you're going to have to stay through your sophomore year because they're going to be like, well, fine then. We won't go to the NCAA. We're going to go straight to Turkey and we're going to play in that league and I'm going to make a million plus. Just like who's the dad that's got the three boys that are really good. Yeah. I know. Who always ball, stuck his ball. nose and everything. Yeah. He took his yeah. kid out of high school and took him to Europe to play because and it's all great. about that money right now, you know, and, and that's the difference between college basketball and college football. You've got that competition of all these other leagues saying, well, we'll take this kid. Hey, this kid's seven foot four. We'll take him and pay him right away. I'm positive about these changes with the NLI or NIL um, paying these players. Uh, the market will eventually dictate what these kids are actually worth and not this kind of hyper effort by some companies to get their name out. And then they realize having this kid tweet my commercial about sports powder is not getting the return of investment that I thought it would get. Therefore, maybe I'm going to cut down a little bit on what we pay out. You'll still have alumni that love their university that will overpay for some of these kids to help build a program. But at least it's going to be above board now. And it's not going to, I mean, it was happening already. I mean, you know, these kids yeah. aren't driving these hot cars because they're from downtown. They grew up in urban Detroit and all of a sudden they can afford Teslas. I think that things will even out on that end. Now, the question you were bringing up earlier was why isn't the NCA a big deal in regarding NIL? It's like the wild west. There's no rules. There's no, you know, what you can yes. and can't do. But when you have, when you have NIL mixed with the transfer portal, oh, this terrible. is the hard part is how do these two coexist? Because let's say you're Bob's car shop and you've got Todd McPhee, who's a player for oh. Vanderbilt that is doing your ads, but Todd McPhee is like, you know what? I'd really don't like it in Nashville and I'm going to transfer to Ohio state in the <laughs> transfer portal. But you've got this two-year contract to make money for Bob's car shop. But how how do those two things coexist together? There's too well, many variables. Well, I think the institutions should have some control on that kind of, like with a scholarship, for example, and their programs. 
player A comes to my school and he agrees. Usually these scholarships, because I was with my son being a runner and being in college and running for a college team, worked in favor of the universities. And so he could go to like, say, Idaho State and agree, I'm going to run for you, coach. And then the coach is gone two years later. New coach comes in and says, I, you know what? I, I think you need to take a hike. You know, I, I don't want you on my team. Eric wouldn't have the ability to stay there. He'd be sent into the transfer pool or transfer portal and have to find someplace else to go play out. You know, quit the sport altogether if he can't find another place to apply his trade. So it's been very unfair for the college kids. Everybody should have a fair opportunity to agree to some sort of contract. And then the contract, it should be enforced equally with each party. For example, if I co-play for Idaho State, it should be a one-year agreement or they should agree to a two-year agreement. But that means the university also has to agree to two years. They can't just arbitrarily say after one year, hit the road, Jack. If the NCA, which has been very inept in this whole thing, would step up and act like an enforcement agency so that the colleges and universities can have organization compliance and governance to their organization. But then you've got big conferences like the big five that are threatening to leave the NCA if they don't get what they want in college football. This is a huge business. It's always favored one party and one party only, the universities. It hasn't favored the athletes. So to me, seeing all this, I'm kind of like, Welcome to the free market, boys and girls. These athletes are people, they're human beings, and they should be treated that way with some respect. And yeah, there's some bad examples, but the university has basically protected themselves in most cases from that bad press. And they can always point the finger at that kid who wants his money. Well, you know what? The reason they want their money is because they're not, then give them that money. And if you can't give them that money, maybe this program that they've created now will work. And I think we just need to give it some time. And I think it's going to be fair for everybody, including the institution. So I don't think college basketball or football, because of the money deal with these kids, is a, is it, is an, is it in any danger? Be a good word to put it. I think, I think there's some other factors that might put football in danger or college basketball in danger, and they have, they're unrelated to the kids that are playing the sport. Wouldn't you agree on that? I I do. And, and, you know, enforcing universities to, yeah, we see full ride scholarships. Like you get a Zion Williamson, a kid had a four year full ride scholarship sitting over there at Duke, but how soon until we start to see universities taking a chunk of that NIL money and saying, you know what? Our star quarterback, if you want to work out a deal with him, you need to pay the university 30% of that contract. And because they're building this boy in his career, some of these power five schools where now these kids are getting 10, 12, $20 million to go to Alabama and Alabama baby said, we're going to take about 5 million of that. Here again, if you're pointing to the actual culprit. It's the greedy institutions. You know who the number one state employee is in the state of Utah? I mean, it's in every state, the college yeah. football coach. Every Kyle state. Kyle Whittingham, the most 
he's paying the most money in the state of Utah. His yeah. contract is sitting at probably what four, four and a half million. You've got Tennessee with Josh Heupel, who's making seven mil. You Nick Saban in Alabama is making nine million plus. Yeah. You know Jimbo Fisher in Texas, who's making ten million plus. It, that, well, that's but, what it, it goes back to the another podcast where I was asking why is there not free school for state residents? Good question. I don't want to get too political on the podcast, but those are good points. Any type of opportunity for the student athlete to have some sort of ability to do his own thing or, or, you know, it's like, I mean, you know, they, they already are limited in terms of their time, but they don't have a lot of time to work a second job. A lot of these athletes are working summer jobs like knocking doors or, you know what my son did last year for $6,000. It wasn't a lot, but every day he would go out into these fields for his internship for his microbiology degree. And they would make him go out all day long in the sun. You were checking these, what they call biomes for this experiment that one of the PhD students were running. He was there from six in the morning till six at night. And then on top of that, he had to still work out for his team. And then during the school year, they're going to lab all day, going to school all day. Then they have to work out with the teams for several hours every day. And then on top of that, they're supposed to also carry a part-time job. And these expenses are cheap. They have to pay for their food. They have to pay for their housing. And the colleges don't pay that much in terms of the scholarships for most of the Olympic sports. Yeah. Your football players might be living the high life a little bit. But even then, the poor NIL, a lot of them were having a difficult time. So... The schools have been very stingy. The NCA, they've, it's almost been a cabal. The two of them have controlled this. I mean, it's kind of like their own little kingdom that they've been able to hold on to until that Supreme Court ruling. And now it's like everybody's complaining now, like, oh, these students are running amok. And I'm like, no, they're getting what they deserve. If you just let it play out. It's actually going to stabilize these kids from wanting to jump immediately to the NBA. You're taking these boys from downtown Chicago or LA or wherever you're recruiting them from who live in terrible poverty. And then you're telling these kids, oh no, you need to wait four years before you can benefit. Your mama can get her house. She can get out of that ugly crack house she's in. Oh, in four years, it can finally pay off. What if he gets injured? Yeah. I mean, what if the coach doesn't like him? The coach leaves and then it's a new system. There's no guarantee for these kids. Screw the colleges. They've had a fat city for so long. It's finally time for things to equalize a little more. So I'm actually pretty dang happy. So anybody that starts whining about it, I'm just like, you really don't understand it probably because you've never been recruited or been a college athlete. I mean... There's so much this money. Look at these big 10 numbers for their new football contract. It's over a hundred million. I think that the sports where you're going to see help from NIL the most. So football is granted like 75 scholarships. Basketball, right. you have 12 scholarships. Baseball, universities are only allowed six to eight scholarships. Oh, for it's, baseball yeah. teams. Yeah. So, yeah. These kids running around. So you have on a team of 
probably 18 to 25 kids, only eight of those kids are scholarship players. And you look at a university like Vanderbilt, who's been a powerhouse when it comes to college baseball, but Vanderbilt is a very expensive institution. <laughs> it is an Ivy League school that is in the SEC, but has been dominant. And I think you're now going to start to see these NILs affecting baseball because that is here in the South. It, it's huge. It's enormous. And, you know, the college baseball tournament that's in Omaha and, and it's, it's a very large revenue sport that is just absorbing all the money to the schools. It's all it's doing. It's, it's not having to give additional scholarships to kids. There's only two or three baseball coaches who get paid on a staff. You're having third base coaches and first base coaches who aren't even getting paid by the university. It's insane how archaic it is. And that begins the transition into the other sports like bowling and cross country and volleyball, where there's only partial scholarships. I'm sure your boy doesn't have a full ride, does he? He's got like oh. a partial scholarship that assists, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, And so all these championships still come through, through college championships on cross country and bowling and golf and all that. The universities are still absorbing money from these championships, which isn't like, you know, 50 or $90 million that you get from college basketball and football, but it's still money from these sports and recognition to the schools and identity placed on the schools. Right. These there are schools that have billion dollar endowments. I don't know if you, you, I mean, these oh, are yes. ancients <laughs> from ever. Yeah. And, and none of that money is going to new students. So for example, let's say I want to go to Stanford. To get into Stanford, it's incredibly difficult for the average non non athlete. Absolutely, uh, athletes it's tough, difficult. But let's say I'm a, a not an athlete. I go to Stanford, I get in barely. Then I've got to face a tuition that's incredibly high, and then on top of that, let's say I want to go and support all the school's activities and sports. Where's the benefit to me? I'm getting a first class education. That is pretty cool. That's worth whatever dollar figure you want to assign it, but you can get college education, quality education anywhere these days. So with the Stanford behind it versus Stanford. Okay. That's why you're going there. These schools can't exist on nothing. So they have to have money to operate. They have to have buildings and research and everything else. So some of that's generated from sports, but a lot of that comes from the community. And a lot of these state schools get funded too by taxpayers. All right, so here's here's where the problem comes into play. I've got these students that aren't benefiting from all this CBS and ESPN money rolling in, and not even the student athletes are really benefiting that much. And what is the where's the money going to coaches? It's going to the facilities. Now these facilities are awesome, but. These kids are only going to be able to use these facilities for a few years. And how awesome does it have to be for these kids to actually play their sports? Maybe we're putting a little too much into these facilities to attract some of these kids. But then in the long run, how much does it really benefit them? And look, and when you want to say, well, yeah, I need a $200 million football facility, which isn't the stadium, by the way. Okay. Why do you need a 200 million where Utah State can? 
to almost beat you on the football field with its team, Wisconsin, and its facilities, 20 million. What's the big difference between the two? Oh, I have it. You don't. Okay, I get that. But where is the money from all these deals going? Why is tuition so high? Why are these kids practically starving? The only ones benefiting are the schools with inflated tuition prices. They're the only ones benefiting. And that's why I have no empathy for these universities or their coaching. I I just roll my eyes when I hear these complaints, even by fans that don't know what they're talking about. You don't get it. You go get yours, man. You can get one of those little side deals, go for it and turn it into something. That's what my son's doing. And that's what other kids are doing. In the long run, this is going to be beneficial to not only the kids, but to the universities as well. They'll see it. They're going to have some of these like basketball where it's so unstable. If you have a good positive NIL program at your school, that you can bring in those alumni that could create those programs and kind of set the guidelines for it and say, Hey, we got to take care of these kids and we want to build a strong program. Strong programs are based on veterans and kids with experience that stay with the program for four or five years. Let's build that culture here at this university. And then we're going to win championships because of that. All that money pouring into the universities, it's still going to bug me a little bit, but I'm feeling better that at least some of these kids are being taken care of, you know, and that way, ethically, I can support the sports a little more. I really could care less after the second round of the NCAA tournament. What happens? Because I don't care about most of these schools. Most of them are the power five teams. I don't give a crap about Michigan or Ohio State and how much they take advantage of their athletes and the system. You get that James Madison that sneaks in there and you're following yep. through the final Size. eight and into the final four, you know, and you're like, come on, man, come on, do it, you know? Versus Goliath, you want him to win it all. He What's happened is through the 90s and into the 2000s, you had your same powerhouses. And I'm thinking about primarily college football. You, you had your Notre Dame, you had your Oklahoma, your Texas, your USC. You, you had the same Greek of powerful teams that ran because of good coaching and, and, you know, tradition and stuff like that. And I think through the 90s and through the 2000s, universities started to realize that their cash cow was in their athletics and not in their student base. Meaning, let's say there's Carl and there's Brent. Two students that go to university so-and-so. Carl is a stud quarterback leading the team, number one ranked team. Brent is a biochemist getting his degree at the same exact university. So-and-so university is going to make revenue off of Carl, not off of Brent, the biochemist. He may see some money after Brent graduates in the form of giving back to the school and stuff like that. However, that school gets recognition from Carl, the quarterback through that entire year. I'm getting eyes of viewership on me. We're getting money going to the bowl game. We win the bowl game and that money comes. You are the focal point of revenue coming into the school and the student that is Brent is, you know what, we're taking his money as part of our revenue and we're going to get him his education and then he can carry on his own merry way. 
where Carl is always going to be associated with so-and-so university. Oh, that's true. That's why I think the NIL uh, structure would benefit Carl in that case and Brent on the No, it benefits Brent when the state say, all right, guys, enough is enough. We're no longer going to be charging Brent 190000 for his state education. Brent can come to our school for free and get his education because of all the universities will not lose money, go in the red or be bankrupt from that situation unless you are the state universities of like Idaho and Wyoming and North Dakota. These smaller states who are not in these large conferences that have these billions of dollars absorbing in. And so it still creates this uneven playing field for everybody. Well, let's say University of Utah, for example, and you know how much I hate the University of Utah sports program, but university itself, it's a good school because here's the reality. They bring in a lot of technology through their research facilities and programs like their hospital. Not only does it create a lot of jobs in the community, but you also have a lot of students filing through there. Like you're talking about Brent, the biomedical student who is going to contribute overall to the university's bottom line, because the research he does, let's say on a master's project or PhD project, the university still retains the rights to his work while he's at the school. And so he does contribute to their bottom line because that gets sent out to the rest of the community that benefits from these sciences. Now, the question is what, I mean, these colleges and universities also have a lot of programs that are black holes that suck in tuition and don't have much of a monetary value, even though someone will argue history does have value. Humanities does have value in an esoteric manner, but doesn't really in terms of economics and making universities viable in the future. I think if he's a gender study humanities student, what's he bringing other than his tuition that he can bring? Do you have those courses? I don't know. That's a good question, except that there is some, I mean, there are value to the arts and maybe the question is why aren't there certain universities just dedicated to those disciplines? And then you have your bigger universities that generate the funds. And you were saying that there were a lot of these little smaller colleges. Well, define what success is in that regard. Is it creating more buildings? Is it hiring more staff? Is it bringing more renown to the university? Is it creating more technological research options for the university? Every school is going to have a different mission or different, just like most companies. And these smaller universities have a lot smaller budgets. The people that run them know that they're run a lot more efficiently. So how do these smaller universities exist? I think that's the main reason. My son, he went to a JC school. Why do we have these kids go to a four-year school? Why isn't it set up where you have your Bachelor of Science schools or Bachelor of Arts, your major schools, and that's where you go. You go to two or three years to BYU or University of Utah. But your first two years, you go to a JC school, the state and the taxpayers Funds, you can get a plumber certificate. You can get a vocational 
degree or your associate so that you can then go to the bigger school. I think a lot of these freshmen and sophomores that get pumped through these big four-year schools, a lot of that money is just money that they can scoop up they're trying to burn through a lot of those kids. The reality is they could get these associate degrees and vocational degrees that they need to go out and be valuable contributors to society now that versus later. Because some of these kids aren't going to be interested in a four-year humanities degree or are going to drop out of medical school before they get there because, you know, they simply find that they'd rather do something different. Why do you need a bunch of business students to University of Utah and BYU. You can go to University of Phoenix online and get a business degree, an MBA. You can go get better valuable experience working for a company than you can at some of these universities. So the whole system needs reform. The whole thing needs to be looked at again and built from the ground up. But there's too much money, too many jobs that are protected. Administrators protect each other's backside. Oh, you're not going to see big change. The system is the way it is because it works for certain important people and the rest of us don't have enough time or we just don't pay attention. Do you really think about the dynamics of the finances and college sports when you're at Buffalo Hot Wings and you're watching the Final Four? No, not one bit. And I'm not looking for what kind of school is that, you know, school known or what kind of degrees and stuff is that school known for? What type of institution you? Rooting on the team is what you're doing. Exactly. Yeah. You're just a sport. It's it's entertainment. It's a release. And I think let me ask I you this: When's the last time you watched an NBA basketball game? Oh, uh, actually, I was a date. She had free tickets. We were supposed to grab something to eat, and then she's like, "Hey, you want to go to this this basketball game with me?" And I said, "Sure." It was the Pelicans and the Jazz this year. I was the first time I'd actually watched a Jazz game all year. Person, what's the last yeah. time you watched it on TV? Oh, I haven't. <laughs> I'm not yeah, for a while. Right? It, oh, now, the last time was a Boston Celtics Lakers YouTube re-recording of a 1980s game in the championship series. How so, often in your teens and 20s did you watch an NBA game? Oh, all the time. Which game? Celtics. Free agency, baby. That's what happened. I hate it. I mean, I understand it. And maybe it's good for those athletes, but now I sound like a hypocrite with the college kids, but I think it's a little different college kids because the, 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 the NBA players in the eighties were still treated fairly well income wise. I don't think they were getting a raw deal if they still had to stay on the same team for a long time. I, so it's a totally different situation than the college kids. I think it's free agency. The NHL has done a little bit better because they've marketed the teams players. The NBA yes. decided to market players. And then right. you've created these personas that, to be honest, I'm not a big fan of most of the individuals in the NBA. They're not really people I idolize. Oh, LeBron's a jerk. I'm yeah, sorry. Cry, baby. We see a lot of that because outside of Golden State, it seems like these teams that are winning the championships are like a group of guys that are like, hey, come on over here. And Milwaukee's another one. Milwaukee drafted all their players and they won the championship. And I mentioned Golden State. We talk about how dominant they were, but outside of Kevin Durant, who came over for two years after they'd already won championships, 
Golden State drafted all those players. They put that team together to the draft. Not signing free agencies, not having a whole bunch of all-stars come on over and join together and how many championships we're going to win. I think that moment right there when LeBron and Wade and uh, Chris Bosh had that news conference, I think that turned a lot of people off. And they were like, no, this isn't what we watched what we grew up with and uh, i i think through that that the game evolved from where we saw fast break basketball and powerful big men inside and driving to the hoop to this drive it down court and pop the three let's play a little game here if i say larry bird what team do you associate with magic johnson lakers michael jordan bull Isaiah Thomas, Piston, Kevin Garnett. You know, when you first say Kevin Garnett, I yeah. think Timberwolves. Yeah, that's where but he, he won his championship with the Celtics. You're like, I don't think of him as a Celtic. Okay. Well, bro. I, I cannot associate a team with him. I yeah. will give him credit for winning a championship in Cleveland, but yeah. Look, you failed in Los Angeles. You went to finals with Miami, but you lost finals. And this comparison between Jordan and LeBron, we have to stop making that comparison. LeBron is a, a, one thing I will say about LeBron as a person, I don't think any of us can say he's not a good person. The guy's building schools for underprivileged kids. He's never done anything outside the NBA where there was any shame or anything like that. He's, uh, he's a pretty. I think he's a little racist towards white people. Outside of that fact, yeah. watching him in movies, he's entertaining. He's a Carl Malone body playing in the NBA. He's always, tra- well, I mean, maybe it's other people trying to compare him to Michael and some of the other greats, but I mean, I just don't think he's there. I mean, maybe he's- I think what turns us off is when he walked off the court in Cleveland. And quit. He basically quit. And Michael Jordan never quit. I mean, ever. I've read a lot of stuff about Michael and his private life. He's a jerk. He's an idiot. Keep in mind, that Chicago Bulls team was all drafted. Scottie Pippen drafted. Paxson drafted. Steve Kerr drafted. The only one that came from the outside was Dennis Rodman. And people can say whatever you want to say about Dennis Rodman. But when he came to the Chicago Bulls, that's when they became the greatest team in history. All right. You think about a guy who gets in people's heads and gets 20 plus rebounds. You give Michael Jordan a chance to make multiple shots off of a miss. We all know what happened. Let me ask you, if you had an opportunity to have lunch, this, this is a lunch, like just like, you know, go to wingers with, with the guy. What is your... All time, all, all the athletes that you know of, which one would you would be your dream? Just go hang out and have some beer and, and a few wings with for a half hour or an hour. Charles Barkley, hands down. Okay, all right, all right. That would be the most entertaining 30 minutes to an hour of my life. Okay. Let's see. How about a pickup game to 21? Who would you challenge? Me? Yeah, Danny but, 
<laughs> Big Daddy, huh? Okay, can we say that? I think Michael Jordan. Please see how good he is on the court. Just to like, even at fifty-five or however. Well, he's not fifty-five, but what is he, fifty-eight, fifteen, or whatever? I mean, it's still phenomenal. I'd love to play a game of tennis with Andre Agassi. That dude is such a personality. I don't know yeah. if you ever followed him at all. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But would you rather play against him or against McEnroe, who would fill oh. the game with so many stories? McEnroe would also make funny of you as you played. That would be a great one, actually. Yeah, I think you're right. I think that would replace. Or you can have a doubles game. It's Steffi Gross and Andre and McEnroe. What else you got? Let's see. Which female sports star, if you weren't married, you'd be good with one date with? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I'm honestly not that into female sports, maybe on a cornucova. Okay. Is there one female pro basketball player that you think would beat you in a game of one-on-one -on -one at your prime? Cheryl Miller. Yeah, she was good. Real and deal. Boy, that was a name you dragged out of there. Cheryl, for those most people who are listening, probably don't remember Cheryl Miller, but she played for UCLA. And yeah, it all begins and ends with if there was no Cheryl Miller, I don't think you would see women's basketball to where it is right now. And same with Pat Summit. You would not see those women's college basketball to where it is today with Pat Summit. Reggie Miller was her brother, right? Brother. Yeah. Also UCLA shooter. Wow. No, yep. Cheryl Miller went to USC. Yeah, she went to UCLA. She didn't go to UCLA. You're right. There was another... Yeah lady who played at ucla years before cheryl so yeah cheryl was amazing she was a legend all right well for a female <laughs> audience i want you guys to know we are aware of female sports so here's a controversial question brent and might get us in trouble with some of the uh, listeners but equal pay for not no nope yeah. nope yeah i agree but it's the difference of revenue you right. look at the stands at a WNBA game, and I'm tired of ESPN trying to force feed this down me. There, you have maybe a thousand, two thousand people that are attending. If you enjoy watching it, that's fine. That's great. But it is not the same entertainment level as even a Division three men's basketball game. I'm right. sorry. It, it just is not the talent level. And it is, it's, look. God bless them. They're they're doing what they want to do. They're doing what they enjoy doing. But a woman could not compete in the NBA. It just would not happen. It cannot. Now, yes, I'm happy to see that there's some assistant coaches. I think there's a lot of women that greatly understand sports. But it's the physical level between a man and a woman, which to bring in a whole other topic, a man who thinks that he's a woman and then competes in women's sports, I don't understand how women are not up in arms against this. This is not the same level. Just because you think you're a woman, you still have all the muscle tones, attributes of a man, and it is not a level playing field, which we've seen as we've had these quote unquote women champion wrestlers who are men dominating women quote unquote track athletes that are men that are just absolutely dominate. It's, it's not fair. Well, it's and, not fair and, at all. 
And it, you, you, one hundred percent. I'm on board with you. I want to devote a full hour to that topic. I was helped out yeah. at the local high school as far as being kind of the team dad slash kind of a unofficial assistant to our high school's cross country and track team over a number of years when my son was running for him. And then so you were the water boy. Well, no, I was the designated driver to all the big, long events where you drive down to Albuquerque. But you get close to the team and you start hearing their stories. And these young ladies push themselves so hard and they're athletic in their way in terms of there is a physical difference between men and women. And I, I think we make such a big deal that everything has to be equal. There is nothing equal in our world. I am not equal to you in certain things, in terms of our our talents, in terms of sports, even though I'd like to think I'm better than you in basketball, there are some situations where you dominated me, but the reality is no one is identical. And this whole phenomena in our culture to try to force equality is crazy. We should be celebrating the differences and focus on what we each do well. I mean. I'm a man, but I'm proud to be a man. And the reality is, I think women should be proud to be women. And these young ladies work so hard for what they they accomplish. And then they have some guy who says that they're a woman come in and take it away from them. It's the biggest insult in the world. And I, I'll disagree slightly, maybe because I'm kind of attached to this a little more with the lady side of it on the sports side, but women are okay with it, but they're getting shouted down on Twitter and other parts of our culture and, and being called homophobic and all kinds of terrible things because they're it's saying not homophobic. It's about yeah. being, if, if you want to have equality, it, you, we're throwing in a whole new right. group and 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 maybe the and again look we could talk about this on another episode but maybe there becomes a third group of transgender athletes that compete against other transgender athletes i've been fine with that i'm afraid there's not a market for it yet but maybe my kids generation they seem to be more open to this concept and maybe there will be a viable third option but i'm just not happy with the way things are right now Yeah. I have one last topic that I want to discuss before we wrap things up. You touched on it regarding youth athletics and the difference of youth sports with us growing up as opposed to today. There's some leagues where they don't keep score. There's this no winners and no losers mentality. Yeah. And, and so this is the thing that I see happening with our society growing up. I was extremely competitive. I always, if, if, if I was taking second place, third place, fourth place, I was going to work harder. You know, I, I pushed myself harder. I, I, I didn't want to be second or third place. I wanted to be a championship. And you had that same exact mentality. I I think we, you know, you're built on that to win, to be the top. And there's nothing wrong with winning. There's always going to be winners. There's always going to be losers. But when you take away the ability to keep score, to have a one winner, you take away the drive that is driven in people to succeed, which carries over out of sports into life. And what's going to happen is we're going to have a society of mediocre people 
who's just mediocre drive and, and effect into jobs. And you're going to have a few people who take advantage of this and are able to fully succeed. And there's already a large gap between the haves and the have not, but there's going to be an even larger gap because this mentality of a drive to succeed is being stripped away from people. No, that's a good, there you make some really good points. And you reminded me of a story that occurred when I was a kid. This is before I moved to the neighborhood, but there's a, a church across that field where I used to live. Anyway, we were in a different area and we had a Cub Scout soccer night at that church. And I remember the leader, she was a lady and she was the goalie. And I, I scored like five goals and I thought I was like, I Pele. don't know. Uh, yeah. I thought I was Pele and uh, I was telling everybody how good I was. I was, I was it, showing my Jersey off. I was getting in her face, getting mad at her. And when she, you know, cause she, I guess she was a goalie for me for a while too. And my dad was watching this the whole time. And after the game was over and we got in the car, he had one of my more memorable lessons of life. He was not happy with me. I'll put it that way. And he, he never was shy. Let me know if he wasn't happy. And he, he thought I was despicable in my sportsmanship. And then he proceeded to explain what proper sportsmanship was. And from that day, I really did try on my end that his voice always would carry through whenever I was getting a little cocky. I could see it in others too around me when they weren't displaying sportsmanship. I think that lesson would be appropriate to these kids these days. When we take away these kids' ability to win, then they feel being good or being doing something really well, it does diminish it and take, take something from it. And I mean, you can see that in the quality of worth, but there is still an, an innate competition gene built into most people, even with these kids, even when I was coaching my daughter's basketball team and they wouldn't let us keep score. They all kept score. Everybody keeps score. So do you want the organization? Well, hold on though. Hold yeah. on. I don't think they all keep score. I think you've got that one parent that just is happy that their child is participating. And sure. I think you'll find that that child in that sports league and probably later on in life isn't going to give a hundred percent because why, why yes. should I give a hundred percent and run all these ladders? Why should I spend hours of off time at the free throw line? Why should I do that when we're all going to get an award? I don't need to work super hard for that because I'm going to be rewarded at the end of the day for it anyway. So why should I? And that mentality is going to carry over to when he gets a job. And well, why should I show up on time? And why do I need to push out X amount of doors on an assembly line. We're all equal here. Why should we have to do that? Well, you really see that too. If you're in a industry where let's say you're not in sales and sales tends to bring out competition because it's like survival. But when you're not in a sales related position, you see the bad habits that you're talking about manifest themselves. Are those people going to be salesmen? When you have no drive, no ambition to be better, to push, to drive, to succeed, 
Well, they don't. They end up yes. quitting. So usually you just with those who are actually competitive. But so now you're cycling through as a company with a bunch of mediocre people who give mediocre effects. That's well, all you're going to have. There is something to that. I see it, especially in non-sales related industries where being late all the time and, and not a, you know, it's like this whole work from home remote thing. I'm not going to go work for you if you don't let me work from home. I mean, <laughs> so you'd rather not have an income for a period of yeah. time. You're 40 years old, you're 35 years old and you still live at home with your parents. That's expensive out there. Oh, make something work. Why are you putting this all on your parents? Yeah, it, you're right. It is a problem. And I think it could, we could have a whole hour to talk about some of these problems that are getting worse in our society, but we're taking yeah. away that works <laughs> and we're taking away that feeling of accomplishment. You know, yeah. when you begin a season and you have a goal and you push and drive and you practice, maybe you're mediocre that year, but you're still pushing for that and you don't achieve that. Then you, you see who won. You see how they react. You see what's going on. You're like, that's what I want. Like you and I looked at that kind of stuff as a kid. We weren't happy losing, but we learned from those losses because we wanted to succeed like those people we were watching. And so the next year we would come back and we would try harder, push harder and strive. And maybe you made it to the final, but you didn't still quite make it. Yeah. But put that effort and you were disappointed, but it wasn't for naught because now you come back even stronger and you're pushing even harder until you finally achieve that championship. Your blood, sweat, tears into it to achieve think, a goal. Do you think though, this can be this whole generational X and millennial. And I remember back when I was a younger dad, you coached your kids when they were like little league era. I noticed a definite difference between little league sports and how they treat the score and who wins and gets trophies and that kind of thing. But once you get to junior high and high school, mostly high school, and because of more recent exposure to the college and high school level, I mean, these kids are put under a lot of pressure that you don't get, not everybody gets a medal. Not everybody wins the event, only one person wins the event, especially where my son was running in the high school level. This is like the big 12 or big 10 of high school running. And the same kids would always dominate and always win. And yes, it does push you though. And my son, it's pushed him to be better. And it's even to this day, still pushed him on the college level. But some of these kids are just blessed with a lot of talent and no matter how hard you work, you're never going to actually beat them. It's just genetic sometimes. In team sports, it equalizes a little more. You got more of an opportunity to find that place on the team or your specialty where it elevates you to a MVP type situation. I think you're right when it comes to this being an issue with our younger kids, but they do get a full I think they get hammered by competition later in life. So we might lose some kids because most kids don't go to the high school sports like my kids. I have a point earlier. Yeah. And, and you had said 
when we were growing up, we didn't have a travel ball. There weren't items like that. There was just rec ball. There's Y Y B A. We'd play Y B A. You know, there were but apples. you'd be good in a lot of sports. That's what well, you still have the YBAs. You still have little league baseball. You have the city rec leagues, and that's where you're seeing the no scores and everybody's an equal. We're all winners here, but it's created this larger dynamic revenue stream of travel ball, of travel sports, of, of AAU and stuff like that. If you're a good athlete in rec ball and you're maybe the best athlete that is on that rec ball team, that boy isn't going to be continuing to play rec ball. At least he should not continue to be. He's going to move over to travel ball where you were talking about. We're seeing these kids that are gifted, that have yeah. that special talent, and they're being trained by people and getting coaching from former professionals and expanding their game at that level. It is about winning. And it, and it is about, you have to give that extra effort because you've got another kid on that bench that is hungry for your position. And it's, it's a small group, but it's a very competitive group that well, I, it creates more burnout. I've noticed that these kids, some of them are super talented. They get on that AAU track and their parents are focused on them being successful and getting into a college. Some kids thrive on that. Other kids, it, it gets them to the point where they just quit. Happens is you get the parent who has the nine-year-old that's jacking home runs or launching three-pointers, and they think this boy is the next kid. He's nine years old. We all think that our kids are at the top of the list at nine years old, but it isn't until you get that high school growth and body that you begin to see the different that happens you know what's funny i try to tell people don't be that parent your kid isn't michael jordan your kid isn't steve young i mean you know i mean if you really looked at the numbers who's going to make it to college division one who's going to make it to the pros it's infinitesimally even less last night eric was home over the weekend he's he's home for the weekend because of his birthday and uh, he and I, we were watching the NCAA championship indoor. We were watching the 5,000 meter indoor race. And some of these guys are hitting 1350 or 1340. That's super fast. Most of the D1 kids right now can't get lower than 1445 to 1450. It's a time that usually their coaches are like, wow full minute faster to be elite. And I mean, the, the, it's just amazing in the track world. If you go pro, you make maybe 75,000 to a hundred thousand a year max. And mm -hmm. those athletes have to work just as hard as any football athletes do to make the NFL. And the kids are phenomenal. Their big thing is the Olympics. If they can get into the Olympics, that's. That's the end, but very few will ever, ever even have a chance to do that. The odds of you being on an Olympic team and running the mile are so low. I mean, you have a better chance of winning the lottery. I mean, it's that hard. These parents, when the kids are like, I mean, yeah, keep score, but also keep it, keep balance and keep your head on. If Johnny doesn't hit three home runs that day, 
don't knock them and say, what's your problem today? You say, okay, how'd you feel about the game, Johnny? Well, it wasn't one of my better games, dad. I struck out three times. What do you think you can do better the next time? You don't overemphasize something that's really unrealistic. Winning's fine and trying to do your best each time, but that's not about beginning a participation trophy. Oh, that's nice. You're trying out for track. No, I want you to always do your best each time you're on the field. I want 100% effort each time. Uh, and, the, and I think that's okay as a parent telling your kids that. You didn't make the NBA, Carl. You didn't play college basketball at BYU. You can't live that vicariously through your child. Okay, so what? None of my kids wanted to play football or basketball. What did they play? They run. They don't play yeah. anything. Run. Okay, well, I could either support that and learn how to support that as a parent, or I can be upset that they didn't do what I think they should have done. Don't be that parent is all I'm saying. That you know what's crazy about baseball? Oh, yeah. What's that? You know what's crazy about baseball is if a hits over 300, he's considered a hitter. Somebody that's batting 320, 335, that's a phenomenal season. 300 means he is successful 30% of the time, yeah. meaning 70% of the time he is not successful. And that's a great baseball player. Look at Michael Jordan. 8% of the time, a baseball player is not going to be successful. A professional baseball player is not going to be successful. Well, look at Michael Jordan. How many winning shots did he actually make versus how many he missed? We yeah. remember the fadeaway to the left against Cleveland, jumping up in the air. That's Thank what you. we remember. And like making Russell look like an idiot as he beats the Jazz. Him. As he yeah. pushed him to the limit. He faked him out of his shoes, dude. Let's be honest about that. Faked him out of his shoes. I mean, you're going to be unsuccessful more than you're going to be successful in anything in life. And as a parent, your job is just to let him know, hey, I'm proud of you being out there. But I'm also, you know, like everything in life, I just expect you to go 100% effort in anything you do in life and then think about it because if they start thinking this way when they're an adult they're going to be a success later in life mess up or when things aren't going right they're going to start asking that question okay what do i do to be better what do i need to do differently the next time so that result doesn't occur and then things will change for them and things will get better so that's the one thing I got caught a couple times going into that helicopter mode. And he does. Every uh, parent. It's 90 degrees outside. He's sweaty. He's dying. He didn't have a great race. This is his junior year or his senior year. And I was like, Eric, you missed this, this, and this. And he's like, Dad, why aren't you just kind of happy that I'm out here in the top 20, finished in the top 20? Yeah. <laughs> It's me at the gym. I'm just happy I made it walking out of here and not on a stretcher. Here's my fat ass sitting on a lawn chair. Yelling at him to run faster. But my son <laughs> isn't running a two mile in less than 11 minutes. And I'm thinking, boy, you are one hypocritical son of a gun, aren't you? <laughs> so after that, that I'm freezing too. That's cruising, man. I almost having a heat stroke. And I'm sitting there sitting on my lawn chair, drinking my cold one. Watching him and getting mad. So that taught me a lesson. And your kids can teach you so much. So anyway, I think we wrap this one up, bud. What do you think? 
Yeah, I think so. It was a fun morning. All right. Well, we'll see you guys later. Have a great week. And I'll catch you. Thanks for tuning in. Recommend us to your friends. Join our Facebook page, Three Dad Bods. We'd love to hear your input. Thank you for listening. We greatly appreciate it. Good one, Carl. All right. Talk to you later. Have a great day. All right, everybody.